I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Mostly you can go fast. And then very occasionally you want to slow down and really take your time. But mostly you can be going fast. I think that part of the problem is that we kind of revert. Like a lot of the decisions that you could be going like super fast on, we're going really slow on. And then a lot of the decisions that you should be stepping back and like taking your time with to kind of work through them because they are going to be high impact. People are just going with their gut. And so it's like they've sort of flipped the script in a weird way. And they're actually allocating their time almost opposite to the way that it would make sense to allocate their time to those decisions. Annie Duke is one of the world leaders in the decision-making space. As a former professional poker player, Annie won more than $4 million in tournament poker before retiring from the game in 2012. Prior to that, Annie was awarded a National Science Foundation Fellowship to study cognitive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Annie is the co-founder of the Alliance for Decision Education. Her first book, Thinking in Bets, is one of Sean's favorite reads, and her latest book, How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices, is the new playbook for making better decisions. Get ready to improve your decision making on this episode. Hey, it's Sean. And before we get started on this week's episode, I wanted to share what I've been working on behind the scenes for the past few months. And that's my new technology job hiring startup called Culture Finders. Culture Finders is here to save the millions of people from working in jobs they hate and dread going to every day. If you've ever been in a job you can't stand or hired someone who looked great on their resume, but turned out not to be great and destructive to your company's culture, then listen up because Culture Finders is for you. Culture Finders is a technology-backed talent matching service that connects job seekers with employers based on optimal culture matching, so both parties can seamlessly merge together. When you create a profile, you'll receive your culture connection score and get matched with your dream company based on maximal compatibility and shared interest. To create your profile, all you have to do is play our fun brain games, uncover your unique personality profile, and answer a few questions. That's it. You're just a few clicks away from connecting to the opportunity that's been waiting for you. If you're a job seeker looking for that dream job or run a company who wants to save the headache of bad hires, head to culturefinders.com to get set up with your culture connection score today. That's culturefinders.com. For all the coffee lovers out there, listen up. I'm crazy about the coffee I fuel my body with, and that's why I'm always grabbing a bottle of super coffee from Key to Life. Super Coffee has something to satisfy every coffee drinker's needs. Check out their brand new pods for the quick pick-me-up that are filled with vitamins and antioxidants. Before every podcast, I fill up on their Super Espresso, and my wife and I are borderline obsessed with their plant-based Coconut Mocha Super Coffee Cold Brew, which has 10 grams of protein, no added sugar, and is keto-friendly. I love the coffee and the three brothers so much that started this company. That's why I became an early investor. There's a reason they just got ranked number 18 on Inc. 5000's fastest growing companies. So if you want to check out what they've got going on, head to drinksupercoffee.com and see what everyone's talking about. Annie Duke, welcome back to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Um, 
It's a lovely day, sunny out, and uh, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, this is one of those conversations that, fortunately, get to have once a year now with you, uh, and I love it. I walk away with more takeaways, and you were first on episode 132, and we covered more of your backstory and your first book, Thinking Bets. So we've got a lot to catch on since then. But I'm wondering, is there any skills training that you do every single day? We can kind of think of these as mental calisthenics or, or things you would do on a daily basis just to improve your knowledge. Oh, that's that's a really interesting question. Um, to improve my personal knowledge. In other words, not what I'm doing with my clients and whatnot. That's correct. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that I really try to do is kind of two things. One is make sure that I'm trying to live sort of the principles of uh, of the type of decision making that that I'm trying to sort of spread throughout the world. So a little bit is of the structure in the way that I try to think. So that can manifest in a whole bunch of different ways. Like I love to play tennis and um, I take it very seriously. Um, and so I really try to practice humility about, you know, what do I know? What do I think I know? What don't I think I know? How willing am I to go backwards and undo things in order to test them out and experiment with like different grips that I might, you know, grip, grip changes or stroke changes, uh, the willingness to, bear all of the mistakes that you make thinking about what the longer term goal is. Um, and that's actually hard. It's like when you, when you change, like if you change your forehand grip, you'll start depending on which way you go. If you, if you're right-handed and you bring your grip to the right, you'll start hitting balls into the bottom of the net. Ultimately the goal is that your forehand is going to be better, but you have to bear a lot of short-term pain in order to do that. And you have to be willing to see the point of view of like the pro that's working with you as opposed to your own point of view in order to be able to do that. And I feel like that's a place where I get to actually practice this stuff a lot in, in kind of a, you know, an unusual place. Obviously the tennis court isn't necessarily where people think that I would be practicing that. The other thing is that I do actually really try to make sure that I'm exploring a lot of the kind of information. I'm sorry. Just, I, I try to like, I really try to make sure I'm exploring a lot of the info information ecosystem um, in order to make sure I'm kind of getting like a pretty broad swath of the, what you would consider like the reasonable views of what's going on in the world. Or, and sometimes it's actually really good to understand the unreasonable views and be challenged by those as well. Um, because sometimes what you think is an unreasonable view has some nuggets in it, you know, that that maybe are things that make you think that that actually turn out to have some reason to them. Um, so I, I think I'm a pretty broad consumer of news. Um, and then I'm will and then I have a relatively broad spectrum of where my friends sit as well in terms of the type of conversations that I'm having. That's outside of the work that I do where I'm really trying to help clients think through problems in which the answers are gonna be subjective, where you're talking about subjective judgments, um, where I'm having to just exercise those muscles all the time and kind of learn, that's where I learn a lot of things about sort of my own work in terms of how resistant are people to these types of ideas or how open-minded are they to them? Where are the places where there are hiccups? What are the things that are re you know reasonable to expect somebody to be able to implement in their own life? How long does it take? Um, what are the different solutions that I could be exploring? Not 
trying really not to settle into the idea that I might know the answer, but exploring, really trying to be aggressive and exploring other ways to improve upon process, even if the process is going pretty well. Um, so I think that I get a lot of opportunities to actually be kind of instantiating this in my daily life. No, I, th- I think that answer uh, just really culminated all of your approaches uh, and that cross-disciplinary approach and why I think it's so helpful uh, for me in my own life. And I know a lot of the people I'm in communication with your work because you're getting so many different inputs. I would love to hit on uh, what you were discussing there for a second about tennis. And and when you're looking to improve on a skill, do you start with an end goal in mind or what is that beginning approach like for you? So I think that we can have finite goals. Like, I, I don't know if people are, are familiar with the tennis rating system, but, um, you could be like a 3-0 or a 3-5 or a 4-0. Uh, you know, as you get better, your rating goes up. And, you know, a pro, they don't really have a USTA rating, but they would be, you know, above a 6-0, right? So, so pros are sort of off the chart. But a really, really good, like the best amateurs out there are probably 5.5s. Um, so your average, like I would say the average really solid um, amateur is like a three, five. So I could set a goal for myself that I want to be a four or five, but I think that that's actually not so useful. Um, for one thing, I think it can create perverse incentives because there's ways to game the rating system without actually net. I mean, you have obviously to go from say a three, five to a four or five, you'd actually, your skills would have to get better, but you wouldn't necessarily have to be the best expression of a four or five in order to get to a four or five rating if you, because there's ways that you can actually game that system. And I guess maybe because I'm a poker player, I sort of think about what are the holes in a system um, that can allow you to uh, move up more quickly than maybe your skill would allow. So I, I actually don't like to focus on that. What I like to focus on instead is goals that have to do with process. Um, so, for example, I would like to, ultimately, I would like to create more spin on my forehand. Now, what the end point of that is, is unclear because I, I can always be fooling around with that and figuring out like what type of spin, when to spin, and I'm trying to learn all the different spins, but it's not like I feel like I'm ever finished. And I think that uh, for a lot of the things that we do in life, it's good to feel like there isn't a finish point but that you do have solid things that you're trying to achieve nonetheless. It's just that they're sort of continuous in nature, that there's always something to build upon that. Um, and that's that's absolutely the way that I set my goals on the court. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I, I love the uh, infinite approach there. Um, I yeah. think that's, it's incredibly helpful to approach life that way. I, I'm always intrigued, though, with high performers. How do you solve for that balancing act between focusing on your strengths and doubling down on those as opposed to going after your weaknesses? Um, yeah, that, so that's an interesting question. Um, so I actually, I think that this relates, I think this relates to my book. So I have a section in the new book, how to decide, uh, it's chapter seven, which actually addresses analysis paralysis. But what I'm trying to do is get people to sort of think about what is the situation that I'm in? What type of decision am I facing? so that I can understand sort of two things. One is what's the impact going to be if things don't work out well? 
and then second, secondly, what's, what is my optionality? Like how easy is it for me if I choose a particular path for me to then reverse course and get back to an option that I might've rejected or maybe choose a brand new path that happens to have opened up for me. So we can think about impacts and option, optionality. And basically what, what I talk about in that section is that the lower the impact of having a bad outcome come from the decision that you make, uh, the faster you can go, the more experimental you can get in your choices. And likewise, the more optionality there is, like the easier it is. I call it quituitiveness. So, you know, people talk about stick-to-itiveness, like you got to stick to stuff in order to succeed. I say, well, actually quitting a lot is what allows you to figure out like what to stick to. And that's ultimately going to make you succeed more because, you know, as you're sort of poking, I'm trying something and then it's not working out, I'm quitting. I'm trying something that's not working out, I'm quitting. I'm gathering all this information. So I think about that the same in terms of when are you focusing on your strengths versus, versus your weakness? Well, when you're focusing on your weaknesses, what you understand is that the likelihood that you have poor outcomes that come out of that are just kind of higher. So depending on the situation you're in, if you're in a situation where having a, a poor outcome doesn't have really high impact, you should try to get really experimental and try to really start focusing on in on how do I... How do I actually think about how to improve my weaknesses in a situation where I have a lot of leeway to do so? So if I were to translate to that to the tennis court, since we seem to be talking about that, obviously when I'm practicing with my pro, I can be focusing quite a bit on my weaknesses. I'm, I'm training my strengths as well, but I'm thinking about different weaknesses that I really wanna be focusing on uh, you know, during some time period and I'm focusing on those in a situation where if I hit it into the net or I hit it out of the court, it literally doesn't matter. Another place where I can think about um, really trying to increase uh, the quality of the things that I'm weak at is if I'm playing a player who's much worse than I am. Because if I'm playing somebody who's much worse than I am, I have more leeway to do things that aren't so good because my edge is so great that it's very likely I'm gonna win anyway. In other words, the things that I'm weak at are likely to be better than the things that they're strong at. So that allows me within the context of a match now to start really working on my weaknesses. But if I'm in a really tight match where hitting a bad shot, where you know hitting something into the net or choosing to hit the ball into the wrong part of a court or chipping when I should have been hitting a topspin ball or whatever it might be, when that's really going to have a big impact, it's better in those situations for me to be sticking more to my strength because I just have less room for error. Interesting. So is it in contexts where you're you're less experienced, it's, it's better to take those chances because the feedback loops are quicker and clearer, and then you can build those up and improve on them. And then when the stakes really matter, implement your strengths more? Yeah, that's what I would say. Um, and, and by the way, when you get to that point, you're going to have more strengths for having worked on the things that you were weak at for, and whether it's weaknesses or strengths. I mean, the, the thing is, it could just be, um, how fast are you deciding? Because when you're thinking about decisions, there's a trade-off between time and accuracy. So 
generally, not always, but generally, the more time that I take on a decision, the more knowledge I can gather. And that knowledge should be creating more certainty for me about what the possible possible ways that any option that I choose could unfold. And that means that my decisions in general are going to have more accuracy. In general, there's a relationship between time and accuracy. The thing is, though, that time is a really valuable resource. We have a limited amount of it. And we want to figure out where should we really be putting our decision-making time and where doesn't it, where does it not kind of matter? So sort of strength and weaknesses sort of fit into this category, but so does it. I, I don't really care if you're like super strong at um, data analysis. If the impact of the decision is not going to be very great, and particularly if the decision is reversible in some way, I would not spend a whole lot of time really you know, analyzing the data, I would just do whatever it is. Because in, in the doing, in the making the decisions, you're actually allowing the world to give you feedback and tell you whether it's working or not. And this then creates a really tight and fast feedback loop. And it's kind of the idea behind, like if people are familiar with agile software development, you know, it's sort of the agile movement um, in business is I'm gonna release a feature, I'm gonna do it pretty fast because I've thought about this particular change that I'm making to the, let's say the user interface. And I realized that if it fails, my customers aren't gonna really care and I can roll it back super fast. So I'd rather be doing these small things that are a little bit low impact, you know, lower impact and easier to reverse in order to collect information about what do my users like, which I may not be able to get from data, right? Because I may just need, I, at some point I just need to ask them, right? what works, if I take certain shortcuts in, in coding, if I, try, if I try to write the code in a different way, like does it work, does it not work, where, and, and you're constantly trying to look for these places where you can shave time off. And then what that allows you to do is, is gather information and build much better models um, of the world such that when you do face a really big decision, you're gonna have much more information and it's gonna be a better decision for it, for having done all these little things first. No, that makes a lot of sense and adds a lot of clarity to that. You were talking about analysis paralysis a second ago. I thought you had some very clear examples in the book that, that a lot of us run into every day. Any of those real-life examples, I know, around eating and selecting food choices uh, that you think are just incredibly helpful? Oh, well, my gosh. I mean, do we not all know, or maybe it's you, the, the person who spends like 15 minutes trying to order off a menu. I mean, obviously this is in the before times before COVID. Um, but like, we all know those people and we may be those people ourselves. I mean, it's just very common that, you know, you go into a restaurant and it's just, you're trying to decide between like two entrees and you're quizzing everybody that you're at the table with and you're calling over the wait staff and asking <laughs> what dish they think is better. And you're looking at Yelp reviews and, you know, all this stuff, trying to figure out like, what, what am I going to order? And then, you know, it happens the same thing with like choosing something to watch on television. You know, people will really agonize over those decisions and have super long discussions about them, you know, or, or what to wear. And if you think about it, like, particularly like if you take something like what to watch on television, if you don't like it, you can shut it off and choose something else. Right. I mean, it's just like, why are you spending 15 minutes having an argument about which show to watch? It's not a permanent decision. But the problem is that we really look at it as it as if it is like, 
once we watch this show, I guess I'm going to be watching this show for the rest of the night. And I've got no option if I don't like it to do anything else, which when I say it out loud, like sounds so incredibly absurd. But I think that that's the way that people approach it. Like I'm trying to decide between watching The Crown or Tiger King and you know, and somehow it feels like the most important decision that's in front of you. And, you know, the family's having a big argument about it. And it's like, okay, but if you don't like Tiger King, you can just shut it off and go put on the crown. Like, so, so we don't really think about these things that way. And I think that um, the statistics show that like, if all you do is take, how much time do people take ordering on average? Um, how much time do people take, like picking the outfit they're going to wear for the day? How much time do people take choosing what to watch on Netflix. I think it adds up to something like almost seven business weeks of time in a year that you're spending on, on what, when you step back from them, seems so clearly to be decisions of very little consequence. And yet we're using up nearly like two months of six weeks of our, of our lives every year on those decisions. So, you know, in, th in that particular chapter, I'm really trying to give people a path to how do, how do you think about your decisions such, such that you can kind of get out of this problem and understand when can you go fast and when can you go slow? And the answer, by the way, I'm, which I hope you got from that chapter is mostly you can go fast. Mm -hmm. And then very occasionally you want to slow down and really take your time, but mostly you can be going fast. As, and the, I think that part of the problem is that we kind of revert, like a lot of the decisions that you could be going like super fast on, we're going really slow on. And then a lot of the decisions that you should be stepping back and like taking your time with to kind of work through them because they are gonna be high impact, people are just going with their gut. And so it's like, they've sort of flipped the script in a weird way and they're, they're actually allocating their time almost opposite to the way that it would make sense to allocate their time to those decisions. Yeah, I thought that chapter for me added a lot of clarity because there's certain things like what I wear. I, I don't even think about it. I kind of have the, just the same outfits, but, but some of those other decisions, even around food choices, I was realizing I was spending and allocating so much of my energy and effort to, towards those. And then when those high impact decisions came up, I was already drained and exhausted from some of those little ones. So I thought that chapter just added a ton of clarity. And believe me, th those statistics that you had included in there were fascinating. I'm certainly highlighting that chapter, uh, sending it to some friends who need it. Oh, thanks. But I would love to even just hit on how you start off the book. And you're talking about two things that basically determine how your life turns out. And that's luck and then the quality of your decisions. So I think having a, a book based on how you make decisions is incredibly important. But when making important decisions, what are or should the objectives be? How do you approach that? Oh, gosh, that's well, you should buy my book. Um, so so I think that what I'd love to to sort of lay the foundation for this. What we can think about is that, you know, when you say there's two things that determine how your life turns out, right? Like there's luck and there's the quality of your decisions. And the thing is luck, you can't do anything about. Luck is something that you by definition don't have control over. So I'm trying, you know, I wrote the book to get a focus on the quality of, of your decisions. But within the quality of your decisions, it, here, here's the thing that I think is really important to understand is that the at the foundation of every single decision that you ever make is are the things that you know. So we can think about our own knowledge. What are the things that we know? And, and it 
if like if we were to draw it out it's like it's like a speck of dust that fits on the head of a pin and the stuff we don't know is like the size of the universe and this is really the main thing outside of luck that really kind of mucks up our decisions right so you could think about like if i could remove luck from the process and I could remove this information problem that, that our information, whenever we're making a decision, we don't have all the information that we need in order to make a perfect one, you know, then all that would be left would be sort of like, how are you analyzing that information? So it would be like you had a crystal ball, the crystal ball showed you the future. And then there's some stuff to clean up because you may see a future where you get in a car accident and still choose it for some reason, right? So we'd like to get you to if you could see the future, we'd like to help you to figure out what makes something a great choice. But before you ever get to that, you have to sort of think about this information problem and how are you cleaning up the information? So what I'm trying, I mean, what I'm really trying to communicate through this book is that you have, unlike luck, you have some control over what you know and what the quality of your information is. And if you can think about, there's this whole universe of stuff that I don't know. If I could actually be peering into that universe, like taking, looking into it and, and then walking through it in, in, in a more random way, such that I was colliding with all sorts of new information, such that I was colliding with information that actually corrected the inaccuracies and the things that I believe. And I was approaching that information in an open-minded way. This would go a long way to really helping the foundation of every decision that you make, which is ultimately informed by the things that you know. Because if we think about that foundation that's at the base of all of our decision, there, there, there's kind of like, there's two problems with it. We have two issues. The first is that there are cracks in the foundation and that's that we believe things that aren't 100% true. They're probably not 100% false either. They're somewhere in the middle. But those are cracks, right? Our foundation is cracked because we have inaccuracies in the things that we believe. And then the second problem is that the foundation is flimsy. It's not broad enough because there's so much that we don't know in comparison to the things that we do. And the solution to both of those things, repairing the cracks in your foundation and also broadening your knowledge is to get a really good look into that universe of stuff that we don't know. And so that we can find all that information that's gonna help this foundational problem. And the problem is that we don't do that. We're, we're pretty bad at that piece. And so what I hope this book is, is really an argument for not just philosophically why you should be really trying to be eagerly in, increasing your knowledge in the most open-minded way possible, but also how you might do that. I absolutely love that. It even how this conversation started out and, and you taking on information from a lot of different people, a lot of different sources, and, and you worded that as colliding. I kind of think of that as that the cross-pollination of ideas from different fields. But the, the big thing there, and this continues to get hit on throughout the book, is just the openness to new ideas. And it's just such one of those intriguing, complexing things to me that so many people are unwilling to be open to new ideas and, and to test what they know and what they don't know. Uh, so yeah, I think that's one of the, the big takeaways and one of the very clear things I saw. Uh, I'm wondering, what have you found, because I know you work with a lot of investors, a lot of people across all different industries, what has been one of the elements of decision-making that's just hardest to teach? That's, that's interesting. Um, 
So oh, I'd say that, so there's two candidates. So I'm gonna give you both candidates. We'll start with number one. Um, I think the first thing is that it takes a lot of work to help people understand how to think probabilistically. Um, and what do I mean by that? Just for any decision that you make, there's a set of possible ways that it could turn out. And each of those possible ways has some likelihood of occurring. And it's incredibly rare that you, you could make a decision which, which is gonna go a certain way 100% of the time. So like as an example, like even decisions that we think are like that are, are near certainties aren't. So if I'm two feet from a car that's in front of me and I slam on the accelerator, it may feel like it's a certain outcome that I will hit the car that's in front of me. But we know it's not certain because there's, there's some small chance of mechanical failure of my car as an example. So even, even things that feel very, very certain are actually not certain. And when you, when you get into, um, you know, whether a, a particular, you know, sales strategy, like what, how much is it going to increase demand? If I uh, pick a new advertising channel, right? What is that going to lower my customer acquisition costs, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, if I um, choose a particular diet, uh, how much weight might I lose or how much muscle ma mass might I gain or whatever it is that my goal is within a certain period of time. Right now you get into things where there's, you start to get a pretty wide range of possible outcomes. And we can see this in COVID so well, right? Like when's the vaccine gonna come, <sighs> right? Each, each vaccine that's being tried may work, may not work, may, maybe uh, is 30% effective, could be 60% effective, could be, you know, there's all these different ways that these things could unfold. And there, so you think about there's many different futures that can result from, from wherever you're sitting now. And, and those are all probabilistic in nature. So first of all, getting people to kind of think about how would I try to figure out what the probability of those different outcomes um, is and how would I go about actually forecasting that and how willing am I to do that? That's actually quite hard. And then the other thing that goes along with that first point um, has to do with this really weird thing about probability that's just really hard to get people's heads around, um, which is that if I tell you there's a 30% chance of rain tomorrow, it either rains or it doesn't. So it doesn't like 30% rain. So the 30% says that under the conditions under which I'm forecasting in, uh, there's a 30% chance that in the area that I'm forecasting with, it will rain somewhere within, within my forecast area. I think that that's how it, and for weather buffs, if I said it wrong, I apologize, but I think that that's what it's saying. So what that means is that if I were to, the way that I could judge you as, as a weather forecaster would be to look at a large data sample, like a large set of forecasts that you've made for that coverage area and find out when you say that there's a 30% chance of rain, does it turn out that it rains in that, in that area 30% 30, 30 of the time, somewhere in that area 30% of the time. But I can only do that over time. And the problem is that on the day, the next day, when I've told you there's a 30% chance of rain and it actually rains because it's either going to rain or it's not, 
you now either say, well, it rained. Uh, she was wrong because she said there was only a 30% chance and look, it's pouring. Or if it doesn't rain, you might say I'm right because, well, I said it was a 30% chance of rain. So, so now maybe I'm right that it didn't actually rain, but I'm neither right nor wrong. And I think that's really, really, really hard for people. I mean, you, you can see it with elections, right? It's like Trump is 35% to win or 30%, whatever he was to win the um, 2016 election and he won and everybody was wrong, except that, that that was one try. So I think that this kind of being able to live with sort of probabilities, right? As opposed to yes or no answers, I think that's incredibly hard. And then the, the other piece, the other thing that I would say is really, really hard is to get people to talk to each other in a way where they're not trying to convince each other of anything. They're just trying to convey the information that they have. They're just trying to tell people, you know, they're, they're just trying to say, this is, here's my rationale. This is why I believe this thing without trying to get you to agree with me. Um, and that, that's actually the second thing that I think is probably the most challenging. For both thinking and, and living with probabilities uh, and then not trying to convince someone necessarily, is there anything you've seen people who weren't good at that initially but be able to develop that mindset? Is there anything they do or is it just one of those, those personality types that they're, they're open to, to changing? Yeah, so look, I mean, obviously personality type really helps. But I think that particularly when you think about uh, the fact that you have influence over the people that are around you, and this is particularly true if you're in a leadership role, that you can really create a, a team dynamic that allows for this thinking, this type of, this way of thinking to really bloom. So, you know, what I talk about at the end of my book in particular is how, how are people in groups interacting with each other such that you can allow all the dispersion of opinion all this cognitive dispersion, all the different perspectives that are living on that team to feel like they can breathe. Um, and then allowing that to live, to not feel like the end point of the conversation of the team is for everybody to agree with each other. So, so how do you do that? Well, you have to show people that you're actually interested in getting their opinion, that you don't, that you're not just looking for consensus, that you actually want to be informed by their opinion. And you need to do it in a way that allows them to not feel like they're disagreeing with somebody. So let, let me try to explain what I mean by that. Um, let's say that I was asking you what your opinion on Forrest Gump was, whether you liked it, whether you thought it was a good movie or not. And um, so I'm asking for your opinion, but we know that like human beings don't particularly like to disagree with other people. So if you're going to express your opinion to me, what is the thing, what is the thing that you would need to know from me first to realize that your opinion might disagree with my opinion? What is the thing that I must tell you for you to know that? What your opinion is? That's right. So this seems so simple, right? It's so obvious. For you to disagree, for you to know you're disagreeing with me, I would have to tell you what my opinion is first. So let's think about the way that normal human interaction goes. This is whether you're like in a leadership position, on a team, whatever. I will say to you, I thought that Forrest Gump was really overrated as a movie. What do you think? Sound familiar? <laughs> too, too often that happens. Right. So the problem is that now if you thought it was the greatest movie of all time, and you know, particularly if we're on the same team where it doesn't 
feel good for us to sort of, we sort of interpret like being on the same page as like consensus. I mean, this is kind of how we get to group think. You're probably now going to not tell me your true, opi true opinion. Um, it could be that, for example, if I'm a famous movie critic in particular, which is sort of the same thing as being a leadership on a team, right? So if I'm like the person with the, with the power here and the what's considered the higher quality opinion in general for whatever reason, because I'm like the most famous movie critic in the world, um, a few things can happen. One is you may not express your opinion just because you don't want to look like a, an idiot, right? Because like, well, this fancy movie critic thinks it's overrated. So I'm, I'm just like, you know, Joe Schmo over here. Like, I don't want to say I didn't really, that I loved it. <laughs> um, so you might not tell me for that reason. You might also not tell me because maybe we're in a group of people and you don't want to embarrass me because maybe you think that I'm just wrong, but you don't say so because you don't want to embarrass me. Um, and then the other thing that can happen, and this is particularly true if you're speaking to someone who's, in, if, if you're in a leadership role, is that, Sean, your opinion might bend toward mine without you even knowing it. So it could be that if I could have gotten your opinion without telling you what I believed, you would have said, I think it's really overrated. I mean, no, you would have said that you thought it was really great and it really deserved the Oscar. But if I tell you my opinion first, you, without knowing it, may start to alter your opinion toward mine. Right. So you, so you might say, for example, so, so somehow your opinion might change. Well, at the time it seemed like a really amazing movie, but it hasn't aged well. Like it could end up being something like that, which is not actually what your opinion was, but you're trying to, you're unconsciously starting to conform your opinion to mine. So what happens when we, we end up having all these conversations in a group is that there's a lot of value placed on agreement. The group tends to linger over the places where they agree. They tend to think they agree more than they do. And sort of declarations of yes or no, right? Getting to consensus becomes what's valued. But if what I do instead is I, I figure out a way within a group setting to not let people know what everybody else thinks before they express their opinion, which I can do, then I'm now getting those people to understand that I actually care about the differences and less about the consensus. And that allows people to understand that it's not all about agreement because you, you through this kind of systems approach, you start to allow the dispersion of opinion to like thrive and breathe. And all I have to do is this simple thing, which is ask everybody independently, not in a group setting before you come in and ta start talking about it in a group setting. It's like the simplest little trick, it's like magic. And then what, what I've seen happen with people is that even people who are let, sort of come into it naturally less open-minded start to really get into it because it starts to sort of define the team. And I'm constantly reinforcing this idea that, no, you should express your opinion. I care about it because now when I'm looking, I'm saying, oh, this is so interesting. Like, Sean, you're sort of sitting here as an outlier. Could you please like just give your rationale for why you think that? And I'm sort of celebrating your difference rather than saying, you know, defend yourself, right? Which is a very different way to approach it. So I think it really has to do with like, what's the kind of culture that you're creating? And then what are the systems that you're putting in place? Like, what are the, the strategies and the tactics that you're putting in place in order to actually create this kind of attitude in people? And then you can, you can always move people, even the least open-minded person can get, can get moved a bit. 
it's so simple, but but so rarely done. Uh, I'm wondering if you've seen organizations bring this methodology on. Is there a downside and negative consequences of this that we just haven't thought through yet? Well, so I wouldn't want to say no because the you know I don't know maybe, but what I've seen with the with the people that I work with is that there's all upside. I mean, look, the downside is it there you have to do pre work. So you can't just come into the meeting on the fly. But I particularly think that when people, I in particular think that when people come into meetings on the fly, the meetings tend to be not so great. <laughs> um, but but you, you know, you're definitely gonna have to do pre-work. So uh, you're gonna have to ask, uh, you, you have to ask yourself, what's the feedback that I'm trying to get the, to, from the group in terms of, you know, if we're coming into discussing something. So as an example, like let's say that we had a hiring committee that had four people on it we have to figure out what are what are the opinions that I'm trying to elicit from each of the four people in the, on the hiring committee about the candidate under consideration. So those might things like be like a forecast of what's the probability the candidate will still be here in six months, a year, two years. Uh, how good of a cultural fit might they be? Um, you know, uh, what do you think they're? Let's say they're in a role that's outward facing to customers. Um, you know, where do they sit on a scale of zero to five in terms of how, uh, what I predict their relationships with customers are going to look like, you know, how strong those relationships will be, right? So you can sort of, I mean, I'm just throwing these things out there, but you figure out for the job that you're hiring for, what are the qualities, what are the things that you're implicitly predicting about the person under consideration that would, in that hiring process, make those explicit and have people actually write down some sort of rating or forecast of those things with a bit of a rationale as to why they think those things. They have to do that in advance. So, so we have to think about the pre-work now, right? You have to figure out what are the things that I'm gonna rate them on. Um, and then people actually have to fill those out with a little bit of a rationale. And then each person does that independently. And then everybody kind of reads that in an anonymized fashion. So that's work. So that, that's really what I've seen as the main downside. But other than that, I would say that the upside is that it creates accountability to the decisions that you're making, um, to the things that you're forecasting when you make decisions so that you can actually get a very clear look back. Because a lot of the problems that we have with learning is that we misremember uh, the things that we knew at the time of the decision. So that makes it really, really hard to learn from experience because you can't really close that feedback loop with any fidelity because you just don't remember what you knew. So the pre-work sort of naturally creates a record for yourself that you can actually look back. So I think that that's really, really helpful. The accountability itself and, and actually having people do forecasts makes them do the thing that we talked about before, which is, uh, okay, there, I know the things that I know, but now I actually have to like write down what I think the, this probability is or where this person sits compared to other candidates that I might see. Maybe I should go look stuff up. So it gets you to actually start to think about what are the things that I know and don't know and what could I find out to make my forecast more accurate um, that I have to now make because I have to write it down. And so that gets you really thinking about that universe of stuff you don't know in a high quality way. So I think it improves knowledge in that way. Um, I think here's the problem. I think that people will say like, well, I just have a good gut feeling about this job candidate, for example. Um, but in that gut feeling, like I said, there's always things that are implicit in the decision that you make. E even if you're making it with your gut, 
So if I'm hiring a salesperson, for example, even if I'm going with my gut, implicit in that decision is that I think that the person is going to be very strong in sales. I mean, let's just say this very simply, right? So I think that the more that you can make explicit and have to say out loud and give a rationale for those things, um, the more that you can make explicit things that are already implicit in the situation, the better the quality of the decisions that will come out of the process because you're just surfacing those things. And then through this process, you're surfacing the differences in opinion that might already get out, might otherwise get hidden by group discussion, which I think is all really good. And then the interesting thing that happens is that when you get into the meetings, the meetings are more efficient. And the reason I think that the meetings are more efficient, and you can tell me if this is your experience with meetings, is that meetings tend to be a lot of um, lingering over the places where people agree. So you'll express, I think that, you know, this person's going to be amazing sales. I think they're, they're really personable and very charismatic and um, I think they're going to be really strong in their relationships with our customers. And then what I'll say is I totally agree with Sean. And I would also like to add my opinion into the mix. And I would also like to spend three minutes telling you why I think that person is going to be very strong in sales. Um, and the majority of the meeting kind of goes on like that. Whereas if you've done the pre-work, you can see that you could already see that Sean and Annie agree on that. But now what you see is that we disagree on the likelihood that uh, the candidate is still going to be with the company in a year. And, and we have a rationale for that. So now what you can do is you walk in the meeting and very efficiently say, here, okay, here's all the places we agree. Yeah, yes. We all agree the earth is round. Great. But let's start to explore these areas of disagreement, these areas of dispersion that we've, we've surfaced not with the intent that I should convince Sean of my position or not with the intent that Sean should convince me of his position, but rather so that you get to say your rationale for why you think it's really likely that that person will be here in a year. And I get to give my rationale of why I think it's really unlikely that that person will be there in a year. And we're just trying to inform the group of why we think that. Now we may at the end, I may raise my hand and say, I'd like to revise my opinion because Sean thought of some things that I hadn't thought of, which I'm really thankful for. But that's because I listened to you convey to me why you thought that, not because you were trying to convince me of anything or tell me that I was wrong. So aside from more work in front, I haven't really seen much bad come out of it. But let me just say, I'm open to, there could be very, you know, there could be bad things that reveal themselves later to me. So I, I don't, I wouldn't throw aside the idea that maybe I'm biased in the way that I look at it. Yeah, I asked the question because this is something I try to do in, in all the businesses I'm involved with. And you bring up a really interesting thing. And that's almost that when we slow down and do the pre-work, we actually speed up in the long run. Those, those meetings do become so much more efficient. So if you come across any potential downsides, please let me know. I would love to know that. Well, absolutely. I will absolutely let you know. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the, one of the down, you know, look, the, here, here's a downside. There may be someone on your team that's like just super resistant to it. And you get in the conversation and they don't want to just convey why they believe what they do. 
And maybe like, maybe there's someone where like, you're trying to convey your meaning and they keep saying, but wait, you, you haven't thought about this or you're not thinking about the data or why haven't you considered this, which is they shouldn't be doing right. They're not supposed to be interrupting you. You, you just get to convey. And then I can ask for clarification, but I'm not supposed to tell you you're wrong. I'm not supposed to say, well, you haven't thought of this, right? Because I get to convey that, right? It shouldn't, it shouldn't be me trying to, to convince you or tell you you're wrong. There's some people who don't, who, who don't do well in that kind of environment, I suppose, and maybe aren't open-minded to it. But my, so you, so you may, you know, some people may not want to do it and you may lose them as employees. I got to say, my argument would be, I'm not sure that that's a bad thing. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So completely agree there. I mean, if you're trying to build a culture right within your team, that particular type of, uh, you know, behavior, I I don't think is really helpful to the team. And one of the things that I think is really nice about it is that, you know, as we have discussions about diversity and, and inclusion, I think that we need to keep our eye on the inclusion part. And so the question is, if someone's coming to the team um, who has different experiences with the world than we do, and the world has interacted with them differently than we have, and they may have very different perspectives, we want to be able to surface those. And we want them to feel like those, those just live, that, that they live, that it's okay to have those on the team, and that they don't need to conform to, to whatever the prevailing opinion is. They don't, they, they, they don't need to feel like to be on the same page. I have to, con- I have to have consensus with what everybody thinks. And so I think it allows for much more inclusion of, of cognitive diversity in a way that really improves your decision process because you're so much more informed as a, as a decision maker if you can access all the different points of view of the people on your team. Once again, this this is why your reading is is just a must. the 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 frameworks just make everything so much clearer. And and one thing I, I could use for a little more clarity is when we're making decisions and they have long feedback loops. So say mm-hmm. say you're making an investment, um, and not in the public markets in the private markets. So you might mm-hmm. invest in a company, you might not get a return or or find out for six more years. So then, how do you build in quicker feedback loops? when the payoff's way further down the road? So that is such a great question. Um, I mean, really great. Thank you for asking me that. That's awesome. So uh, what I would say is that that goes back into this idea of what's implicit in the decision that you're making. So if you're investing in a company where the exit might not be till six months from now, what are, think about what are, what are the reasons that you're investing in that company? Right? There are certain things that are implicit in the forecast about, and many of those things are things that you know will happen in the short term. So as an example, let's say I was an, an angel investor, right? So I'm just, a founder has come to me and they have a really good product idea, right? And I, I just think that their product is cool. Implicit in my decision to invest has to do with things that I, I, I think that that person is gonna do along the way, like, Um, they're going to hire an amazing team around them that can sell the product. Well, those are things that are going to have a much shorter time horizon, right? Um, They're actually going to be able to execute on their development timeline. So I can be forecasting that, right? They're going to, they're going to be able to raise the next round of capital after angel. I can be forecasting that. 
do you see what I'm saying? Like, so there, it's not like you make the decision and then the world is a black box to you until that company exits or it doesn't. There's all this, all within that very long time horizon, there are all these things, these, these, these signposts that happen along the way, right? That you can stop at and look at. And when at the time of the decision, you should be actually trying to forecast those. In other words, you should make those explicit because then you can create much tight, tighter feedback loops. No, that's, that's so, very yeah. helpful there. You mentioned doing that on the onset and, and kind of having those goalposts. How about as that progresses? Should you constantly be adding new ones and new metrics? Well, yeah. So, so again, such a great question. <laughs> you're you're actually getting to places that that aren't in, you know that I didn't get a chance to cover in the book. So I really appreciate that. That's a really good question. So the answer is yes. So you can think about when you're, uh, if you're reviewing an investment, like whatever that periodic review that is that you do of the investment at that moment, um, you know, the investment may be illiquid, right? But uh, so, but you should do this either way, but let, let's just make it an easier, uh, just an easier way to sort of get your head around it. Let's assume that the investment has some liquidity that you could, that you could sell your position. When you're reviewing, if you're reviewing that investment, you should think about it as a brand new decision, right? If I had no money in this, would I be investing? Such a great point. point. You should just be reforecasting all of that stuff. Um, and then depending on what those forecasts look like, you could either say, I wanna, I wanna get, you know, I wanna sell the position or I wanna hold. Um, or maybe you wanna press, right? I mean, you, you could wanna invest more heavily in it depending on what the result of that forecast look like, looks like. So sort, sort of like the Netflix example in, when there's liquidity in the investment, you know, you can think about like investing in your time to watch a movie as a highly liquid investment because you can literally turn the TV off after five minutes and stop. So um, some investments are more like that, right? You can, you can get out of them faster. So now we can sort of just take that framework and move that into something that is less liquid. So if, if I have an investment where there isn't a way for me to easily get out of the position, I still wanna be doing those regular reviews and reforecasting, um, and the reason is that one, I'm going to be making more decisions than just that one. And the more that I do these kinds of forecasts, and I allow myself to close those feedback loops more quickly, the more that uh, my decisions are going to get better, because my knowledge of the world is going to improve. It's going to help me correct my process, um, you know. And I'm just going to I'm going to build better models. I mean, that's basically what it is. I'm going to I'm I'm going to make better decisions going forward because I'm closing the feedback loops more quickly. I'm not just allowing the world to sort of wash over me. Um, and given that I'm going to make more decisions, I'd like to sort of understand the area that I'm making decisions in a lot better, which that helps you do. The other thing is that when you make those forecasts, even for something that's that's not liquid, it may turn out that you say, oh, this is really not forecasting well. I don't really like this position much. But you can now say, given that that's not forecasting well, that may reveal other other investments that you can make that act like excellent hedges against the one that you're already in, even if the one you're in doesn't have liquidity. So, so by doing those forecasts, you can open up, uh, you can sort of see other market opportunities that might be available to you, and also creative ways uh, and more accurate ways to actually find ways to mitigate the downside of the choice that you've made that it's harder to get out of. 
Yeah, that last point you bring up, the, the creativity element of all this, and, and I found that with, with reforecasting, it really does open up so many more creative ways of thinking uh, and approaching those certain problems. Uh, this is why I love these conversations, because you, you help spark new ideas in me. And, but I'm wondering, I mean, you're doing such a good job like helping me learn these things. What about outside of decision-making? What skill of yours or mindset do you just have the hardest time teaching other people? That's an interesting question. Okay, so let me think about this. So that's an interesting question. What's the thing that I have the hardest time teaching to other people? So I think, sometimes to a fault, uh, I think I'm just kind of so, I'm thinking so much all the time about what I can control and what I can't. I mean, I think this kind of comes out of having been a poker player that you just have to so get used to, you know, like that card was going to hit 2% of the time and I just happen to be here for it kind of thing, you know? Um, so I think there's, oh gosh, and I'm going to say two things. The first is when I'm like really annoyed by like a bad customer service agent, I don't really, I'm pretty calm in those situations because I think that I, I'm, I can sort of step back and I'm always sort of living pretty, a little bit farther into the future, I think, than, than people naturally do. And so I'm imagining if I start yelling at this person, is this actually going to get what I want accomplished? So that track is going on in my head at the exact same time as the person's being incredibly annoying and frustrating. So then I'm just saying, well, so I'm no matter how frustrated with the person I am, I'm going to be really friendly to them because I, that's the way I think that I'm actually going to be more likely to have this turn out well. And I think that that's actually something that just like, it was so many years of training at poker of just like crap happens. Like <laughs> you have to think about the end goal and not get caught up in like what feels really good in the moment emotionally, because it's probably not going to help you get to the place that you want to get to. Um, and I think that that's actually kind of hard to teach. I think that a lot of that is sort of experience and some of it may just be naturally. I, I just happen to be someone who who's living a little bit farther into the future, which has downsides by the way. Because I think that in some ways I don't necessarily enjoy the moment quite as much as some other people do. And so I, I think there's like a, a bad side to that as well um, that I could probably take some lessons from other people with. Not probably, I could definitely take some lessons um, from other people with to just enjoy the moment a little bit more. Um, so I think that's one of them. But I think the other thing is this, and I've been thinking about this actually with COVID, is one of the things about playing poker that's super clear is this idea that there are just so many different ways that the future could turn out. So if, if you think about like, if someone's familiar with the game, Texas Hold'em, you know, you get dealt two cards and then three cards come down in the middle. So that's called the flop. And so, so if we think about a deck of cards, it has 52 cards in it. And now I've got the two cards that I can see in my hand. So that's two that I've seen that I know about. And then these three cards that have come down in the middle, so that's three that I've seen and I know about. So that's a total of five. So five out of the 52 cards I have laid eyes on. I've laid 
you know, I know what they are. I'm not just looking at the backs of them. So now when I'm thinking about the next card, that fourth card that's going to get dealt that comes down called the turn, there's 47 different cards that could hit that are all possibilities because I've only seen five. So all 47 of those cards are possibilities. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm holding 47 futures in my head at once because I can chunk them. So I can think about like, well, what if it's a club? So I get to chunk sort of all the clubs together. I could think about uh, what if it's a face card? So that'd be another thing I could do. Or um, what if it's in a category which poker players refer to as a blank? And a blank means that um, it's probably a, an, a card that has no impact on the outcome of the hand. So that's called a blank. So I, I sort of chunk them into these things, but I'm probably holding five or six of those chunks in my head. And now whatever I do at this moment, I have to plan for literally any of those to occur. And I have to think about how do my actions right now sort of affect what's going to happen depending on the types of things that, that you know, these different chunks of cards that, that could be coming down. And I think you just get really used to when you're playing poker, this sort of way of living of sort of holding all these things in your head at once and not feeling like you need to know exactly which one's going to hit because honestly, you can't, you can't know. And you sort of get okay with that and that balancing act. And I've seen, you know, in this environment with what's happening with coronavirus, that I find that that's something people are struggling with. They want people to tell them for certain what the future is going to look like. They want to know what next month is going to look like when we can hardly know what next week is going to look like. Um, and I think that that's just really hard to teach people. You can do it, but I think it's hard um, without the experience of really, really seeing that over and over again. And, and I think it goes into that sort of the probabilistic thinking that I'm really trying to help people to understand. It can be taught, but I think it's really, really hard to get people to sort of live in that space. I feel like someone just just cut a hole uh, in my skull and just gave a little preview into my mind as well. <laughs> so this is actually really <laughs> helpful for me, uh, kind of playing out those multiple universes uh, at, at all times. Any other pitfalls along with that besides not being in the moment uh, that someone who experiences that can think through? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, I don't... I, Look, I think that with all of this stuff, you're trading off some short-term benefit for some long-term benefit, right? So if I, long-term, I think it's it's not good to not be thinking about all the different ways that things could turn out, good or bad. You know, but short run, I don't know, maybe you're happier if you, you have rose-colored glasses on, you know, maybe you're happier if you think next week is gonna be great. Maybe you're a little bit happier if you imagine that the, you know, that everything's going to be fine and there's going to be a vaccine ready for everybody in October. Um, you know, but I, I don't think that that's good for you in the long run. But I think in the short run, maybe you're a little bit more anxiety free, you know, maybe there's some more happiness that comes from that. And we should consider that, you know, those, those trade-offs really are real trade-offs and that if I'm saying, well, I think that, that the long-term advantage to thinking this way um, drastically outweighs whatever you might be trading off in terms of short-term, you know, 
contentment or something that I may be imposing my values on other people, right? I, I may be just saying that, that the things that I value in terms of what I'm trying to get in the long run are more important. And I, I wouldn't really want to do that because those, those are my values and my goals. And I think that I'm willing to trade off whatever sort of anxiety and sort of exploring the dark side that might come with that type of feeling in order to get what I feel are very significant long-term gains in terms of my ability to improve my decision-making and sort of what my long-term outcomes might look like. But that's what I care about, right? So um, I'm trying, obviously I write books that try to convince people or convey, I should say, convey why I think that this is a really, really productive way to live your life. But, uh, and why I think that you should, that long-term, you know, living out your goals on a longer, you know, thinking about your goals on a longer horizon um, is going to be really beneficial to you um, in, in terms of having great results. But what I imagine is that people who read my books are somewhere in the space of perhaps already thinking that way and, and trying to figure out how to execute on it. And some people I may move through this type of thinking through the information that I'm communicating. Um, but, you know, some people maybe are just happy bopping along, you know, and I, I that's okay. No, thank you, Annie. That was a, a very honest and, and, and truthful answer there. So I really do appreciate that. And one of the things a lot of people are, are navigating right now is that uncertainty you've really helped me with that. And the way you did that was just kind of helping my ability to understand the difference between complex uh, versus complicated scenarios. I would love for you just to hit on this for a minute, even just to refresh my thinking here. So here's the difference between complex and complicated. I think it's a, it's a good way to think about uh, what type of decision you happen to be facing. Complicated is like chess, where there's a very, you know, there's a much smaller influence of luck and the information is available to you. So basically what you're doing there is you're technically from an academic stand standpoint, what you're really dealing with is risk, right? That there's some spread to the outcomes depending on what you do. Um, and you're trying to figure out if, you know, given whatever decision I make, I can identify perfectly what the possible outcomes are. And I could actually assign probabilities to those so that now it, it becomes a question of, and that of, what is the downside that I'm willing to bear given any option? You know, how much variance am I okay with for, for gains and expected value? You know, all this is kind of what you're thinking, but that can be complicated to calculate. Uh, in other words, it, it, it could be a really, really hard math problem. You can kind of think about it that way. But the idea would be that it's solvable. So you can think about that, like chess is an incredibly complicated game for a human being to actually solve all the way to the last move, but we know that computers can do it. So even though the, the calculations are really comp complicated, the actual endpoint is knowable. And what's interesting with complicated problems is that if I show you an end position in chess, you can kind of calculate what, you could actually calculate what are the different ways that you got there, right? So, so you could imagine how the game could go from the start and figure out what the possible paths were to get you to the position that you're looking at. Um, so that's complicated. Complex is when we add in uh, a strong influence of luck, but also ignorance. 
So ignorance technically from an academic standpoint is when you lack knowledge that allows you to, to really perfectly identify what the possibilities are or what the probabilities, obviously what the probabilities of those possibilities are because you're not even quite sure what those are. So once we add in kind of luck and imperfect information into the mix, what happens is that we get into complex decisions, which basically means that your forecasts are subjective. There's some sort of, if you were an omniscient all-knowing being, you would know exactly what the perfect answer was, but you're not omniscient and you're not all-knowing. And so you're working in this imperfect space, trying to tease out these, these problems that really don't have a solution, not, not one that is knowable. Um, that's kind of the difference between those two. So I'm really trying to help people with complex problems where there is, you know, there is no answer. It's not like flipping a coin where you know that it's going to land heads 50% of the time. You know, when you're, when you're looking for different people who are, who are trying to think about hiring a head of sales can have four completely different opinions about that head of sales. Is there would an omniscient being know exactly what the right answer is? Sure, but we're not omniscient, so we don't. So those become much more complex problems. Oh, Annie, that is so helpful. Uh, you you really do help anyone who picks up your work understand those complex problems. The first book was Thinking in Bets. Your new one, How to Decide Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. One final question before we get you linked up with everything. If you were going to sit down with one person dead or alive, not a family member or friend, that you could have the microphone, who would it be? Who would you spend an interview, uh, an evening interviewing? Hmm. That's a very interesting question. I have so many answers. It, I don't, it, <laughs> it depends on like whether I'm like right in my topic space or not. You know what, honestly, I mean, I, I know it's, it's just, I probably just Danny Kahneman. Um, I just think that he's, you know, he's so incredibly smart and he has so much to say and I have learned so much from him and just being able to sit and like talk to him and explore his mind. Um, but then otherwise, you know, but I, I can also say like Wittgenstein would make a really interesting interview or von Neumann. Um, uh, you know, I could go back to, you know, like, do I get to pick like Antigone? Like she would be really cool to interview. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, it's that's, oh God, there's so many people. That was such a bad answer, but there's no, no, no. Th th this shows who you are and, and pulling from so many different fields and, and diverse backgrounds of people. So it has actually probably yeah. more clarity than you think. But Annie, I, I really can't thank you enough. Uh, like I mentioned a minute ago, the book is how to decide simple tools for making better choices. Anything else you want to leave the listeners with? Uh, and just so you know, I also am going to link up Alliance for Decision Education because I love what you're oh, doing there. Oh, thank you so much. I yeah. really appreciate that. That's awesome. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I hope people enjoy the book. I, I had a both fun and torturous time writing it just because all books are, are hard to write, but, um, you know, I hope people enjoy it. I, I felt like there was a paucity of books that, that gave you real tools to, to solve some of these problems. There's lots of amazing work out there on the foibles, right? Like how we go wrong in our decision-making. And I just really wanted to write a book to hopefully show people how you can go right 
in your decision making. And I hope that's what people get from it. And I hope I hope people enjoy, you know, what I put out into the world. Well, I certainly do. So Annie Duke, once again, I cannot thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. All right. Thank you so much, Sean. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.